For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. But woe to anyone through whom they come. It'd be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. So the warning here is, don't be a stumbling block, it says in some of our translations, something that people stumble over. It's going to happen, but it better not be you that does the stumbling. And you know, whatever, um, whatever a millstone is, this sounds like a pretty bad penalty. Thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around their neck, that would be like better than what would happen to you if you became a stumbling block. You know, a millstone, it would have looked like this, Okay. You see that giant round wheel? They would have put their grain or their olives in this, this little area, this little track, and then they would hook up, usually hook up like a, like a beast to that axle. And as, as the beast walks around the circle, the, the wheel would grind out the grain or the olives or whatever you put in there. And what Jesus is saying is, he says, okay, imagine you take the, the axle out of there and you put yourself in there. And instead of just like rotating it around the grain, you take it and you toss it into the sea with your neck in the millstone. And that's a, that's a heavy millstone there. They came in different sizes. The parallel passage, he, he specifies heavy millstone. You know, this one right here, this is maybe four feet across, two feet deep. By my calculations, we're talking 4,400 pounds. You're, you're dead, Okay. You know, the picture he's, he's depicting is something like this. Pretty terrifying. Jesus, you can tell he's, he's not happy about this, this fate that he's warning people about. He's really trying to get your attention. And so what does he mean when he says causing people to stumble? What is it? How do you cause someone to stumble? We need to avoid this fate. You know, some translations, they say literally causing them to fall into sin. To fall into sin... And, you know, I, I definitely do not want to cause anyone to fall into sin. You know, my, my job, my goal is to try to help people have victory over sin. And so Jesus, you know, he's warning them here. But this warning, though, it seems like a pretty stiff penalty for anyone who causes anyone else to fall into sin. And, you know, the word here, stumbling block, this is literally the bait stick of a trap. So it's like, you know, it's a different word than the normal word for sin that we'll see in just in the very next verse. But it's almost like an animal that goes into a trap and then hits the stick and the trap closes on them and they're caught by the hunter. And so it seems like something a little more serious than just causing someone to sin. I think he's probably talking about false teachers like the Pharisees here. You look at the context of the book of Luke, the general thrust of, of Jesus' teaching, his opponents, especially in this section. And... <clears throat> You know, how do you cause somebody to, to stumble? Well, what the Pharisees were doing is they were teaching. They were teaching that they were so righteous and that you need to be like them in order to get to heaven. And that if only two people get into heaven, surely one of them will be a Pharisee. That was a saying they had. And, you know, they expected that they, when they die and they come into the presence of God, that they're going to get a standing up ovation. Bravo, bravo. 
And Jesus says, no. Actually, you're going to get a millstone. Or really, what you're going to get is going to, is going to be a lot worse than that millstone. You're going to wish you had a millstone when you come into the presence of God after what you've done, after how many people you've led astray. And so Jesus is saying, don't be like them. He's saying, be very careful if you stand up and claim to speak for God. You know, I mean, you think about something like murder. That's like a pretty heinous crime. That's something that even in our justice system today can get you the death penalty because you've, taken, you've ended someone's life. Well, the false teaching the Pharisees were doing, this was worse than just ending someone's physical life, killing their body. They were actually causing eternal death for people by this false teaching. And so that would be a much worse penalty than even killing someone and ending their life. When you think about the damage done by false teaching, this is arguably the most effective strategy that God's enemy, Satan, has employed throughout the centuries. If he can create a false religion or even just a version of Christianity that's wrong, that teaches, uh, you know, not wrong in some minor area, but wrong in something pretty important like how to get to heaven, and then he can get thousands or even millions of people to buy into these religions, the damage is almost incalculable. And God's not happy about that. It'll be, you know, they, we, we saw all the horrors of hell last week. You know, hell is bad, but some people, they're going to get even worse punishment there. And he says, these false teachers, they're going to be right up at the top of the list. They're going to get the worst. God is angry about false teaching. And, you know, <clears throat> application for Christian teachers, you know, if you're a Christian who's truly been saved and forgiven by Christ, you know, we shouldn't walk around being afraid that I'm going to get a millstone. However, um, it does say in James 3.1 that, that teachers are held to a higher standard and that we need to really take seriously the responsibility of teaching God's Word. Uh, I, I love that we're in a fellowship where people really want to be great Bible teachers, and I think that is awesome. But we need to make sure that we're doing the study, that we're putting in the prep, that we're taking the responsibility seriously. It also helps to have some checks and balances built in, like a fellowship where we train everybody in the Word at a really high level. And where, we, you know, typically after a teaching like this, we'll open up the floor for Q&A where you guys can speak up. If there's, if there's some area I've misspoken, I want to know. And uh, hopefully you'd point that out in a kind way. <laughs> so that even if uh, one of our teachers is off by a little bit, we've got the rest of the, the, the body of Christ helping to hold each other in check and always holding it up to the Word of God. Always beware a, Christian, a so-called Christian teacher that's trying to steer you away from reading your Bible. That's the last thing we need. So the first lesson, don't be a stumbling block, Jesus says. What about the next one? He says, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. So a call to rebuke and forgive. You know, what Jesus is saying is that if we're going to be really committed to closeness with one another, that means we're going to fight against sin in one another's lives, rebuking. And secondly, we're going to have to forgive the sin that we commit against each other. So first of all, rebuking. You know, what is rebuking? Rebuking is where you go to somebody and you say, look, and he says, specifically he's talking about when someone sins against you. So you go and you say, hey, you wronged me. I feel like there's a, there's a thing between us now, and I'm asking you to admit you were wrong and to apologize, a rebuke. And, you know, this is something that, 
in the world people don't usually do. At least they don't do it in love. There's actually a lot of mistakes we can make in rebuking. You know, one is never doing it. That would be one way to violate this teaching of Jesus here. And uh, it can be pretty scary. You know, I remember the first roommate I ever had when I moved out and went to college, this, uh, this guy I lived with in the dorms. He was a friend of mine from high school. But I found pretty quickly that it was a lot harder to live with somebody than it was to see him a couple times a week. And, you know, I found myself getting more and more frustrated, angrier and angrier at him. But I kept stuffing it down and stuffing it down and stuffing it down. And, um, you know, eventually it would burst out. But it was not in a very righteous way at all, not in a very helpful way at all. And so I just didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to go to somebody and say, I, that hurt. You wronged me there. I think you're in the wrong here. And can we talk this out and try to come to some sort of an agreement here, some sort of a compromise? You know, in some cases, the solution is compromise. There's other cases where you're actually asking for an apology, and you're ask, asking for the person to change their behavior. And so never doing it, this is one way to violate what Jesus is teaching here. It's not loving. And uh, basically, is, it's, it's a passive stance. That's like, ooh, I'm just going to back away from you. That's really what you have to do. Another way is overdoing it. Some of us do this. We're constantly rebuking. We're rebuking way too much. You know, at first it sounds here like Jesus is making us out to be the sin police, where if anybody ever sins, you rebuke, and we're trigger happy. That's not what he's teaching here. You know, you've got to harmonize it with the rest of the teaching of Scripture, which is that um, most, most offenses, most sins that people commit should just be overlooked. The Proverbs say it's the glory of a person to overlook an offense. And so we're going to have to learn how to develop a thick skin. We're going to have to learn how to be patient with people. It's usually impatience is what moves us into hyper-rebuking mode. And um, that's, Jesus is not teaching that we, we over-rebuke either. That's not the way to closeness in Christian community. We kind of have to monitor how many times have I brought things up lately? Am I overdoing it? Am I completely losing a hearing with this person? How important is this? We should save it for more important things. Is this a pattern or is this just, they were having a bad day and I know that they're not usually like that and there's no need to bring this up. Also, another mistake we make is when we don't do it out of love for the person. We can come in pretty prideful and um, talk down to the person, be really harsh with the person. Sometimes we come in in this prideful way where it's like, I already know everything. I have the perfect read on the situation. Instead of coming in, asking some questions, have you ever tried that? That's one of the things that has really helped my confrontations a lot, is to come in and to start by asking some questions and making sure I know what actually happened, understanding where they were, what they were thinking, where they were coming from. You know, what you might see is that um, from their point of view, things look a little bit different. And so we're asking some questions. I think it's helpful, too, to share how you felt. Instead of just being bossy to share how you were affected, that often can change the demeanor of a confrontation. Um, so, you know, sometimes we come in prideful. Other times, we come in bitter. Bitter toward the person. And it's, we try to stuff that down, but we can't help but coming off bitter, angry, and frustrated with this person. And we're trying to rebuke out of love, but in reality, we're coming off far from loving. And that really is his, his next point here. He says, if they repent, forgive them. If they repent, forgive them. 
And you know, there's two kinds of forgiveness that the Bible talks about. There's the one kind that's unconditional, that we always do no matter what. Like it says in Colossians 3.13, it says, Always forgive anyone you have a grievance against. Forgive like God has forgiven you. And you know, when we receive Christ, He cleanses us for all our sin, past, present, and future. He took our sin in His body on the cross, paid for that. And so that's something we always need to do no matter what the other person's response is. Otherwise, we're going to be eaten up by bitterness. But the other kind that he's talking about here is a conditional kind that says, and I want a relationship, a restored relationship. And that's not always the case. Jesus says there's certain kinds of sins that people commit. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's so bad that you know, it might require repeated confrontations. You might even get to a point where they just won't listen. You say, look, we can't have a relationship anymore unless you repent on this issue. Unless you repent just means to change your mind, to agree with God on this issue. There might also be other extenuating circumstances that um, simply just don't allow that relationship to continue. But, you know, this conditional kind, what he's talking about here is the kind that restores the relationship. If they repent, forgive them. And um, he's, he goes on and says, even if they sin against you seven times a day, and seven times they come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. And so he brings up here seven times in a day, and they come back to you seven times, and they repent, and you say, I forgive you. Okay, what is Jesus talking about here? The point is not to count the offenses. You know, he's kind of using some hyperbole here. It's pretty unlikely that somebody would sin against you seven times every single day and then come back to you after each time and ask for forgiveness. You know, so we're talking seven times a day, 49 times in a week, 210 times in a month, over 2,500 times a year, a person coming to you, sinning against you, asking forgiveness and you forgiving them? I don't even think I have time. That's like a part-time job just being sinned against and forgiven by that person. The point is also not like, you know, you forgive up to 49 times this week, but that person hits 50 and you're like, I'm sick of this, I'm done with you. I could have taken 49, but 50, we are done. Jesus says, I do not have to forgive you anymore. Also, you know, if somebody was sitting against you seven times a day and asking forgiveness, you kind of have to wonder, are they really sorry? Like, what if you have a friend where seven times a day he would just, just jack you in the face and then be like, I'm so sorry. And you're like, I forgive you. Hour later, you just get this boom. He's like, I'm just sorry about that, man. I only get five more today, don't I? <laughs> no, I would really start to question their repentance after about the second one. <laughs> I'd be like, okay, I forgive you in principle, but we got to find out why you keep jacking me in the face. <laughs> and so the point is not counting the offenses or anything like that. It's, kind of, it's a little bit of a ridiculous situation because the point is we need to expect to give out a ridiculous amount of forgiveness. There's, there maybe are people here in this room who have never forgiven anyone ever. Maybe some of us have never apologized to anyone ever. 
And Jesus says, I guess that's maybe something people do in the world. But here, that's not going to cut it. If you're going to have closeness with people, you're going to have to expect to be hurt and to forgive. And forgiveness, if you've ever tried to do it, you'll find out it's easier said than done. There's times where I just feel like I, I think I've forgiven this person, and then all of a sudden I just feel these hate feelings. Something will happen. They'll say something. I'll see something. I'll remember something. And the hate feelings will rise from the ashes and will feel as strong as the first day that I felt them. And you're like, I thought I had forgiven. What's the deal? Well, that's why I wanted to talk just a little bit practically about how to go about forgiving. Practical steps to forgiveness. I'm going to give you three that really helped me a lot. First of all, ask Christ to pay for your sins. All This forgiveness Jesus is calling for here, this ridiculous amount of forgiveness, this is supernatural. In another passage, he says 70 times, seven times. And all forgiveness that we give to other people, the Bible says we forgive as Christ forgave you. And so any forgiveness we're able to give to other people has got to start with me receiving forgiveness from God. And the, for God, the forgiveness that God gives me is far greater than seven times a day sinning against Him. I wish it was only seven times a day. You have no idea how many times you've sinned against God. Every sin you do against another person, that's a sin against God. The, the one who created that person, the one who created the whole notion of right and wrong. You're violating God's people and His standards. And so Scripture says that, that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to pay for our sins. And then as a result, we can be cleansed, past, present, and future. We don't, I, I used to think I had to come back to God after every single sin and ask for forgiveness to get it. That's not how it works. All of your sins were future when Christ died on the cross. And the moment you receive Christ, that applies His death to your sins, past, present, and future. And so the first step you got to take if you ever want to be able to learn how to forgive, to have the power to forgive, is to receive Christ. A second one is stop making the other person pay for how they wronged you. Yeah, forgiveness, it's not forcing yourself to feel something. It's not drumming up or trying to squash the feelings that you do have or trying to forget what they did. That's not forgiveness. That's partly why you, you maybe think you just can't possibly forgive, why you feel powerless to do that. It's because you have a misunderstanding of what it is. It's not even necessarily trust. It's not permissiveness. It's not doormat. No, forgiveness is where you refuse to make them pay where you refuse to take revenge, where you trust God who says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. You trust the great judge. How do we make people pay? Well, what about when you make cutting remarks? What about when you drag out the past to them and you remind them of what they did? Or maybe it's not to them, but it's the jabs that you take when they're not around. It's the negative. You know, somebody says something positive about that person, you're like, yeah, but... And then you cut them down. What about harsh treatment of them or cold avoidance? We're mean to them. We're overly demanding, overly exacting with them, very short with them, unkind. 
That's a way we're punishing them. I've been hurt, and I'm trying to transfer that hurt over onto you. That's the goal of bitterness, punishing. We replay the mental tapes. You know what I'm talking about, right? You've got these videos burn in your brain, and you've, you've pulled those out, and you've watched those videos so many times. Over and over again, you remember exactly where you were, exactly what they were wearing, exactly how you were feeling. Sometimes you replay the video and you do what you think you should have done and you play out a different ending. And, and where you're the hero and you're punishing them and you think what I should have sent them, what I should have done. What about fantasizing about Revenge. What about rooting for them to fail? What about actually trying to sabotage them or harm them? I've thought or done everything here on this list in bitterness. And this is how we make people pay. And I got news for you. It doesn't even work. You're trying to punish them. You're trying to make them pay. They might not even know that you're bitter against them. They're probably just living their life happily, having screwed you over, and they're going about their life, and and they don't even notice. And if they do, it might be that you just look kind of pathetic as you try to punish them. What you're really doing is you're harming yourself. It's poisoning your perspective on everything. It's poisoning your relationships with other people. It's poisoning your relationship with God. And it's directly against what God is calling on you to do here. He wants, you to lead you, he wants to lead you out of the shackles of bitterness. He wants to cure that cancer that's eating you from the inside out. The cancer of bitterness. How do we do that? Well, third and finally, instead of making them pay for their sin, you need to pay the debt yourself. Isn't this how God forgave you? Instead of making you pay, he took the debt upon himself. Now, when we forgive, it's not in the same sense. I mean, he actually, Jesus actually atoned for sin. He was innocent and he suffered in your place. That's something we just can't do. You can't actually pay for sins in that sense. But what you can do is instead of trying to take the pain out on them, it's a choice, a commitment to instead... Absorb that into me. I like how Dan Hamilton puts this in Keller's paper, The Gospel and Forgiveness. He says, Once upon a time, I was engaged to a young woman who changed her mind. I don't know if anybody's ever had that experience. He says, I forgave her, but only in small sums over a year. Those payments were made whenever I spoke to her and refrain from rehashing the past. Whenever I renounced jealousy and self-pity, whenever I saw her with another man, whenever I praised her to others, when I wanted to slice away at her reputation. Those were the payments, but she never saw them, and her own payments were unseen by me. Forgiveness, he says, is more than a matter of refusing to hate someone. It's also a matter of choosing to demonstrate love 
and acceptance to the offender. Pain is the consequence of sin. There is no easy way to deal with it. But wood, nails, and pain are the currency of forgiveness, the love that heals. Got anybody in your life that this is relevant for? Anybody you've felt bitterness toward? Is the bitterness consuming you? There's no easy way around it. How can we pay the debt? Be kind to him. Try kindness. Seek to restore the relationship, if appropriate, which like I said, it's not always appropriate. There would be certain conditions that would be attached there. Do not criticize her. Ever. In your mind or verbally. Stop dwelling on it and replaying the, the videos. You tried praying for it? That's pretty difficult. Truly praying from the heart for this person. Praying for their success. Praying that they would be honored and glorified. Praying that God would use them, that they would be happy, that they would be happy together. Consider, how can you serve or encourage her? Again, if appropriate, or even possible. Sometimes our bitterness is toward people who are deceased. And uh, it's obviously the relationship could not be restored in that case. Although writing that letter to that person, even if they're never going to get it, can be a good way to work through some of these bitterness feelings. Finally, continue to confess your bitterness to God. And thank God for your forgiveness. You're just going to find bitterness is going to come up again in the future. And you're just going to need to be like, Lord, thank you for pointing this out to me. I didn't even know this was still there. Thank you that you've forgiven me, including you've forgiven me for the sin of bitterness. And uh, I pray that I can just leave this at the cross where Christ paid for my sins and I can move forward and not live in bitterness anymore. Rebuking and forgiving are unavoidable components of having closeness in the body of Christ and really they're, they're, they're part of living the Christian life. So that's two lessons. Don't be a stumbling block in rebuking and forgiving. The disciples, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Maybe in response to that forgiveness teaching. Maybe this is just another vignette though. And Jesus said, faith, yeah. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree over here, hey, mulberry tree. Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and the tree will obey you. <laughs> That's kind of weird. <laughs> All right, so here's, here's a mulberry tree. That's pretty big. It was proverbial for its roots, like really being deep in the ground, too. These were not easy to dig up. If you've ever had to dig up a tree, it's really hard. This was extra hard. And Jesus says, yeah, something really hard like that. If you just have faith the size of a mustard seed, that big, you could just tell this tree to, to rip itself out of the ground, fly through the air, and then plant itself in the sea, which usually it needs soil. 
But if you had mustard seed-sized faith, you could even make it plant itself in, in seawater. All right. That's kind of a strange promise. Really makes me doubt the quantity of my faith. <laughs> I've never gotten a mulberry tree to do that. It also makes me wonder about the quantity of all of your faith, too. Because I've never seen any Christian do that. What is Jesus saying here? It sounds like another ridiculous situation that he's, he's putting forth here to teach us a lesson. Part of what, what he's really teaching here is he's teaching a lesson about the nature of faith. That the quantity of the faith is really not the thing that we need to be focused on. What we need to be focused on is the object of our faith. Where are we placing our faith? Are we placing our trust in God? That's the important thing. This whole business about lifting and, and, and launching mulberry trees, it makes me think of this scene in Empire Strikes Back. Remember this scene? Where Luke is there with Yoda in the swamp. His X-wing fighter is completely submerged underwater, right? And Yoda's like, why don't you just lift it up out of the swamp? And Luke's like, I can't do it. I gotta go to the Tashi station first. And Luke's like, I guess I'll try. And Yoda's like, do or do not. There is no try. <laughs> and so, you know, he tries and he fails and Yoda taps into the force and he lifts it up and he carries it. He drops it over here. I mean, is that what Jesus is talking about here? Well, a couple key differences. You know, one, God is a personal being, not a force. And a lot of times when people think about faith, it's almost like they have to muster up willpower to tap into some kind of magic, right? And the more you believe in it, the more you're able to grab it and harness it. It's like electricity or something like that. God is a personal being. God is a being that you can just go to and say, hey, can you do this? And it's not like you have to really believe he's going to do it. You just have to ask him. And regardless of how much you believe it, he can do it or not do it based on what, whether he decides to. And so it's very different. Another difference is God's power could never be harnessed to do evil. That's one important qualification here. You know, with the force, you know, you could harness it, you could use it for evil purposes. Magic is that way as well, right? With God, though, Scripture qualifies this in other places. Jesus says, you have to ask God, but it's got to be in my name meaning something that's consistent with what I would want. It says in 1 John 5, 14, you have to, if you ask anything according to his will, we know that he hears us, and we know that if he hears us, that we're going to get our request granted. And so, and so God is really not interested in launching mulberry trees around. Again, this is an a absurd example to illustrate a point. The point is that the object of faith is more important than the amount of faith. And if you want to increase your faith, Jesus does say at times, ye of little faith. But if you want to increase that faith, the point is not to try to drum up your faith willpower. The point is to start putting that faith in the right place, in God, in his promises, 
in his word. And what you'll find is that the quantity of your faith will grow as you focus on the object of your faith. It's a very distinctive view of faith in Christianity versus what the world teaches about faith. So the third lesson is on faith, the nature of faith. The fourth lesson, he says, suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after sheep. Well, Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat. So you got your servant out there plowing the field, watching the sheep. When he comes in, is the master going to be like, oh man, you've had a hard day. Why don't you just sit down and let me get you something to eat? Jesus says, no. The master will say, you're not off work yet. Get me my supper and then get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. The master comes first. Jesus asked, and he said, after that, you may eat and drink. He's like, of course, that's what he's going to say. And then he says, and then is he going to thank the servant just because he did his job, just because he did what he was told to do? Jesus is like, of course not. So you also, when you've done everything you were told to do, you should say, we're unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. So this is our fourth lesson. What he's teaching about here is a servant's attitude. The attitude that a servant should have. And at first, we read this, and it makes it sound like God is this demanding master who never rewards or thanks or serves us. He sounds like kind of a jerk. But we know that Jesus has already told us that's not the way that God is. Remember what he said back in Luke 12, 37? He said the the servants are going to come in from the field, and he says, I tell you the truth, the master himself God himself will see them, and he's going to put on the apron, and he's going to serve them up something as they sit and eat. Jesus said in Luke 22, he says in Luke 22, I'm among you as one who serves. So no, actually God is not that way, which means we have one of those a fortiori arguments. Remember those? Whenever you're reading something in the Gospels and you're like, man, that sounds weird. The answer might be the a fortiori argument. What he's saying is if normal servants faithfully serve their masters, their masters who don't thank them, they don't reward them, they don't serve them, then how much more should we faithfully serve our master who does thank us and reward us and even serves us? Shouldn't we even more have an attitude of faithful, loyal, God, I will do whatever you want me to do, and I am so pleased to be your servant. That's the attitude that we should have. Yeah, something terrible happens when we approach God with an attitude of entitlement. You ever see people, they're serving God, they're working hard, and you can just see they start to get angry at God. I mean, you'd expect this from non-believers. A lot of, you know, the... uh, the new atheists and the objectors to, to the God of the Bible, they're always like, oh, God owes us this, and I can't believe in a God that would do that. And the notion that God owes you anything, boy, you really fool yourself if you think that. But from believers, we also see this, where they're hard at work serving God, and deep down, what they maybe didn't even realize is they had certain expectations. That God, of the way God was going to bless me, Usually there's a timeline they have, and they're like, look, I've been serving you hard for six months now. I've been putting up with these, 
these other annoying people in this ministry house. And um, I thought that I was going to have a boyfriend by now or a girlfriend. I thought that my suffering was going to go away. I thought that my school situation was going to be better. My financial picture. What's up with my relationships with my family, Lord? It seems like they're getting harder. I thought you were going to fix all of that, and they were just going to back off and quit pressuring me. And so we start to see a bitterness seep in. People get angry at God that he's not doing what they demanded that he do, they expect him to do on their timeline. It's not that we should never expect any reward from God, but when we get really specific about when and how he's going to do that, and then we start to get angry and bitter, we start to run into problems. And sometimes God will hold out on us for our own good because he's trying to purify your motives, because he's trying to teach you something through your suffering. And so, you know, the only proper response to God whenever he asks us to do anything is, yes, sir, thank you, sir. I can't believe that you've, you've adopted me as your son. I can't believe you've given me anything, and now I get to serve you? Boy, this is not going to last much longer. I mean, pretty soon I'm going to be sitting there in your presence in heaven. Thank you that I get to work for the greatest being in the universe and that I know you're going to take care of me. That's the kind of attitude that we should have. And that's what's going to enable us to serve all out for God. Finally, it says Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, traveling along the border between Samaria and Galilee, when this really interesting event happened that Luke just couldn't resist. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance. Remember, lepers had to stay outside the city. These were, had all kinds of different skin diseases. They weren't allowed in society. They were ostracized in terrible pain. Many of these diseases would have been chronic and some even terminal. And so they were left to beg on the outside of town. And they were standing at a distance, and they called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. But when he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. The priests were like the health inspectors. You had to check in with the priest to make sure you were really healed before you could become part of society again. And so he hasn't even healed them or anything, and they're like, he asked them to go to the priest before they're even healed, maybe as some sort of a step of faith. So these guys are on their way to the priest, and all of a sudden they look down and they realize the leprosy is gone. Well, what do they do? One of them, Sully, was healed, and he came back praising God in a loud voice. And he threw himself at Jesus' feet and he thanked him. And that guy was a Samaritan. So nine of these were Jews. One was a Samaritan that hated Samaritans. I guess as lepers, you just hang out together because you're all losers. <laughs> but the Samaritan comes back and thanks Jesus. So, I mean, imagine this scene. There's 10 guys. They're all healed. And only one of them stops and goes back to the guy who healed him of this chronic terminal, painful, debilitating disease, and he thanks him. I mean, think about that. You're walking along, and you're just like, oh, my leprosy, it itches every moment of my life. And you're like, whoa. 
my skin. It's baby fresh. <laughs> and they're like, man, that worked out pretty well. And they just went back to their life. <laughs> and only one of them stopped immediately. That's the thing with Thanksgiving is usually if you don't do it immediately, you may never get around to doing it. He stops what he's doing. There's never going to be a convenient time to thank God. This guy noticed that he was healed too. Sometimes you don't even notice the blessings in your life. You just, you just feel like it's always been that way. And he goes back. And it's a Samaritan of all people. And Jesus, he asks these three rhetorical questions that illustrate our lack of gratitude. He says, we're not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? And has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? It just really illustrates that we have the ability to absorb an amazing amount of blessing and not get any more thankful and not thank God once for it. It's pretty remarkable, actually, the capacity of the human heart. It's like we just sit there complaining about how nothing good has ever happened to me. We walk around feeling sorry for ourselves, ignoring all of the blessings of God in our life. If only we could see things from God's perspective, we would see how utterly ridiculous this seems. These creatures, you know, he gave us life. He created us. He gave us amazing capacity to think, to appreciate beauty, to love, to feel, to, to create. And then we rebelled against him. And he continued to love us. He continued to let us exist. He continued to let this world run forward that he's created. You know, of all this, the solar systems and all the galaxies, that he would have any interest in us on this little fallen planet, insignificant little specks, that he would even want to talk to us or allow us to speak with him. And then he would send his one and only son to become one of us, to die for our sins, to continue to hold out his offer of forgiveness. You know, I wonder how many times Jesus asks this question. I wonder if he asks this question about us. He looks out at a room full of a couple hundred people and he's like, weren't there hundreds of people there at CT last night? And yet, so few have returned to thank me for anything. It's, it's mind-blowing. He's given us so much, and yet we're ungrateful. And, and unfortunately, what ingratitude does is it makes it harder and harder for us to even feel blessed, to feel gratitude. The best thing to do is to start out by thanking God. Every day, trying to practice gratitude and look at the effect that that starts to have in your life over the long run. Well, Jesus concludes, he says, rise and go. Your faith has saved you, made you well, or saved you. It looks possible maybe this guy actually got eternal salvation. You know, his buddies are off being declared clean by the priest. This guy is being declared saved by our great high priest. He got a lot more. Well, let's just try to wrap things up by restating these five lessons from Christ. First of all, don't be a stumbling block. 
not walking in the path of the, the Pharisees, taking seriously the call to teach God's word, rebuking and forgiving, a radical commitment to helping others overcome sin and to forgiving them when they do sin against us. The nature of faith where we focus less on increasing the quantity of our faith and more on the object of our faith. The quantity will come. He taught us what a servant's attitude should be. Where we're not having an attitude of entitlement, but where we're just grateful to be drafted into his service. And we're happy to serve him. No task is, is too low for us. We're happy to serve him in whatever way, whatever capacity he wants us to serve him. And finally, gratitude. Where on the one hand, we have an amazing ability to absorb blessings and not even notice. But on the other hand, we can turn and we can thank God for all the good things he, he has given us. And that's Luke 17. Next week, we're going to move on into Luke 18. We'll pick up the rest of 17 when we get to um, Luke 21, because it's kind of two halves of the same teaching. Yeah, Father, um, thank you that you give us guidance for how to live life. Thank you that you give us the tools to actually have relationships with one another, Lord. You know, you give us the, the, the power and the guidance to help each other with our sin, to forgive one another, Lord that you teach us what faith is really about, and that you also free us from the, the ingratitude and entitlement mentality that so many of us walk around with, Lord, and just move us over into the, the wonder and joy of being purchased by you and forgiven by you. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.